Good morning. Uh, good morning also to you in Wilmington who are joining us. We will be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Hebrews 11. And I want to start by sharing something that's sort of going to describe the arc of the message. And um, will sort of help us think about things. When you're getting ready to engage in a new a new and complicated task, like driving a car. This is the pattern of instruction. The instruction begins with very discreet rules. Just do these things. Put your hands here on the wheel. Before you get in the car, you're supposed to, remember you're supposed to walk around the car, check all the tires. Um, you know, if you're going to Turn left, here's all the places to look. Turn right, all the places to look. Here's how you stop. And then the laws on top of that. But it's very discreet. Do this. It almost assumes you don't know anything about driving. Because many don't. And it doesn't really assume that, that, that you even have to be a great thinker. If you just do these things... Uh, you'll do okay. And they give a little bit of principle, like be a defensive driver, but not much. That's how driving starts. Then you learn to drive, and you become a driver, and 10 or 15 years go by, and you gain a much deeper understanding of how to drive. All that's involved in driving. In such a way that the old rules, they, first of all, they fade away. They sort of fade but also, you, uh, you appreciate, in your experience of driving, you appreciate when to, I'm not saying when to live outside the law, but when to live outside the, the rules of driving. You own it enough that you can sort of improvise. And that's true in all sorts of complicated things. A sport, you start this way, in, in a, a sort of the beginning of a sport, Someone's learning, you, has to, you need to stand this way. Here's the rules of the game. If they throw it to that person, then you're going to go stand over there and look for this. There's just the basic rules are set. But everybody can recognize a natural athlete who knows the game. And when a natural athlete knows the game, when they really understand the game, they're the ones who break the rules of the, not the actual rules, but break the formational rules of the game for brilliance. They're the ones who know the game is not really built on these rules. It was originally described by these rules. In other words, you start something complicated with a discreet and simple perspective. Then you come to understand something, and when you return to the thing again, you don't think about it discreetly anymore. You think about it in a much deeper sort of way. Well, in a way, today, I sort of want us to do that. I want us to note how we're doing a series of church and culture. We're asking questions like, how is it that the church, which used to be at the center of the formation of American culture, has drifted, has actually been pushed to the margin, has very little formal public influence anymore, and is sort of a peripheral uh, jetty in our culture. How is it that that happened? And today we're going to sort of go through the whole pattern of 
the simple way maybe we, we thought when we were in the center uh, and, things, and we were being pushed out of the center and not knowing why, why aren't things working anymore. We're going to try to understand that and then return with, a, with a, maybe a more vibrant uh, understanding of how to move forward. We have embraced so far in this time this image of exile as helping us to explain sort of how to think. Whether it's God who has exiled the church to the margins or whether some other thing was at work and that we find ourselves here, it's still exile is still helpful for us to sort of put on and adopt. It gives us the right posture. It helps us think the right way. We're exiles. There's a lot of hope in that perspective that I find. So let's look into it. Let's talk about, first of all, some simple ways that um, even over these past 10 years, when I began to approach the subject of marginalization, how I approached it simply. So when the church gets pushed to the margin, what do we do? I would say one simple way of reacting is you organize a, a, a counter faction to oppose whatever force it is that's displacing you. So there's, by the way, I'm not saying any of these are bad or evil. I'm just trying to identify maybe what is a little bit too simple about them. What The whole answer cannot be in these, okay? So imagine there's a, the pro-choice movement pushes against the church, so we organize the pro-life movement. You, you are organizing a like entity to push back. That was one simple way of responding. Here's the problem with that, is what if the, the opposition plays dirty? Do we play dirty? No. What, what if the worldly force behaves in a worldly manner? Does the kingdom force behave in a kingdom manner? You can't. And this is one thing that I've observed, is in the counter-factionalism that has arisen you know, whether it's when I started first hearing about focus on the family as a child, all the American family, radio, all these sorts of things. In the counter-factionalism that has arisen, one thing that is difficult to understand is, and one thing I observed growing up was, is even though I am in favor of this kingdom faction pushing back, oftentimes it did not appear full of the love and grace of Christ. It felt argumentative. It felt like it was playing by their rules. Because it's, I think it's a little too simple of a way of understanding it. What if, here's another one. What if we elect like-minded officials, right? Whatever capital or government you're thinking of, we just need to elect like-minded officials to go to that capital and legislate the policies on our behalf. I think this is overly simplistic for a church in the margins. For one the pool of candidates who are like-minded goes down when the church is in the margins, as we should overwhelmingly appreciate right now. They are not like us. And two, if they are like us, why would we expect them to get elected? Because who they are and their thinking is in the margin. In other words, the ways and language and things that the world cares about 
Someone who is like-minded, like us, if they're really committed, are not going to be able to say the things that need to be said in the way that they like to hear. So I feel that that is a sort of shipwrecked approach to a church that's being pushed to the margins. Here's the third one. Why don't we boycott? I'm saying these are the three very common instruments of the 80s. Mobilize, boycott, elect. Mobilize, boycott, elect. What if we just boycott? Well, what if there's no perceived effect of your boycott? And by the way, I have had this sneaky suspicion that many of the things that the church finally starts to boycott are maybe things that the church should have always abstained from in the first place. Okay? So, that is always in there. I'm now boycotting what maybe I should have been more careful about ingesting in the first place. But what if there's no effect? I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of just the oversimplicity of calling this the kingdom of God. About 2008 in Delaware, across the country, there was a big economic downturn. Many of you may remember it. Um, Delaware was in need of money. So the political machine in Delaware mobilized and the gambling industry in Delaware saw the opportunity and went for it. Because in our state, the re- our revenue in Delaware is linked to the profits of the casinos. So, Delaware got desperate, and when you get desperate, you'll do anything for money. And the casino industry saw the opportunity, and they made proposals about bringing more casinos in. Now, for, just so you know a little bit about me, that is a, that's a particular issue just in the spirit that's in my gut that I have often just been very mobilized about, very energized about, is trying to protect people from the, the ills of state-sponsored or gambling, okay? So I just don't think, I don't think something established for your welfare should be preying on your, on your weakness. And so anyway, when I heard about this legislation, which of course, because the machine's fully mobilized, they announce a town hall, you're going to have a town hall. They announce it Friday afternoon when all the reporters have gone home. And that town hall will be held on Monday afternoon so, so that they can say they had a town hall and they listened to the public, even though nobody knew it. But there was a town hall that somebody inside the machine gave me a call about. And they said, hey, it's going to be next Monday, uh, four days from now. At, or actually, I found out about it the day of. Hey, there's a town hall today at four. And I rushed over to this firehouse in Newcastle, Delaware, And I was overjoyed in my heart to find out that the parking lot was packed out. And people, hundreds, there were 300 people at this fire hall, which could probably not hold more than 200. But what are you going to do, tell the fire marshal? So there there were like 300 people there. And they were walking around with signs in their hands saying, no more casinos, stop gambling expansion. And I was, I was, elated in the spirit when I was in the parking lot. Thank you, Lord. I'm not alone in this. I thought I was going to be like the only person here to try to speak against the the gambling industry. But look, I'm with 299 of my brethren in arms. And we go into the, the, the town hall and I sign up. I'm like number 36 to sign up to speak on behalf of the ills that have been wrought against some of the people. 
Anyway, I won't go to my high horse. But nonetheless, I'm there. And about 10 minutes goes by when people start to speak until I realize something. Something like 297 of these people, all of who are holding no more casino signs, have the same employer. You know who it is? Delaware Park. They got buses and they bus their employees over. Because if there's more casinos, they lose revenue. And what I realized is, this is not me and 299 of my best friends arguing about gambling. This is the machine that is arguing for the expansion of gambling in the existing organizations. So me and three other weirdos <laughs> said our piece. You know, one was an angry, angry, angry. One was not well-spoken, and I was probably a little bit of both by that point. And we said our piece, but I walked away. I walked away that day much wiser, much wiser. Uh, for one, the kingdom of God essentially was one part of 300 voices that day. I mean, I'm not saying I spoke purely the kingdom of God, but I'd just say there was no, very little other voice that had anything to do with what is really best for our people. Entirely on the margin. If we do not gain a deeper understanding of what's happening, we will, like simpletons, just spin our wheels in ineffectiveness. We need to remember we are not like this world. We serve a greater God and a different kingdom. And here's, here's some things that have come through understanding. Okay, Many of these things, I'm going to mention three things, they have pretty much already been said in the weeks prior. So I'm just kind of turning them back up, turning the soil back over. But if we're going to build a perspective for us, if we think of ourselves as a church in the margin, as a church that's overly overly marginalized and doesn't have a loud voice and doesn't speak, well then where then do we begin to have hope? And here's where we begin to have hope. Here's the first thought. First, God is enthroned right now on his throne. There's nothing wrong with God right now. He hasn't failed. Like this world, he's not asleep at the wheel. God is sitting on his throne and is entirely able of doing whatever it is he wills to do. He made this world. He's spoken into being. He's fine. That's the first thing that the church needs to hold on to in a time of hardship. God is on his throne and knows of our condition. First. Second thing is the willingness to ask, how is it possible that I have been part of this problem? We've done this weeks now. Weeks we've been trying to work this out. Of In what ways have we been part of the problem? There's a section in Romans where Paul's writing about the Hebrews who say, well, we have the law and we're the Jews. And he says, actually, this is early in in, in the book of Romans, excuse me, early in the book of Romans, Paul says, actually, one of the problems is, is that you who have had the law have not done what the law intends or entails. And therefore, because of your poor living beneath the banner of Yahweh, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Your hypocritical life has done damage 
forensic damage to the work of the kingdom in this area. That's what he says. Is it possible that in the ways that we have all too much enjoyed similarity in life in the world, have we betrayed God's kingdom? In which case, the best thing he could do would be to put us to the margin. Now, you may think all day and all night and all year about this and come up with nothing, and if so, that's great. But I, I, I still think the humble pursuit of asking this question is, is, gives God space to speak. That's the second thing. And this is the third thing. The mission of God's people, our perspective for those who remain in the kingdom is always one of victory. We always act out of victory, no matter how big or small the church is, no matter matter how marginalized the church is, you and I remain victors in Jesus Christ. You and I still, nonetheless, if we were the only two people left in this ragged culture with the good news of Jesus Christ, we would be the only source of light in this people. We always must see ourselves as, no matter how small or marginalized, as nonetheless victoriously sent as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the only real good news that the earth has to hear. We are victorious because of what we hold, not because of how we've necessarily behaved. We hold the trust of the salvation of God through Jesus Christ and all of the goodness of the Spirit that comes from that, that reorders life and puts it back in the right way. That's what we have. And so the church no matter where it is, is always victorious. This is how I would like to think about it. Think of an underground church in a distant land where it's entirely subverted and has to operate in secret. That underground church that no one even knows exists is nonetheless still the city of God on the hill in that community. And it is still the light of the world in that community. There is no substitute for that. And your being the light of the world and my being the light of the world is not predicated on how officially sanctioned or admired the church is. We are the salt of the earth. The question is, have we lost our saltiness? Have we lost our flavor? These three things, God's not failed the opportunity to investigate how is this possibly our problem and the notion, the encouragement of the moment we turn back, any, any, any effort to turn back to God, we immediately embrace the victory of him, his victory in this battle, this opportunity to establish his kingdom because his kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't behave in the same way. It doesn't operate by the same rules. It has its own way of claiming victory. So what I want to do sort of with this, and take this understanding into Hebrews chapter 11. And I'm in Hebrews 11 because I think the single best place to start rebuilding our longing for his kingdom here and beginning to think about where, where then do we look and hope. I think the single best place to start is on the subject of faith. Yep. 
Let me read Hebrews. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a little time on 1 through 3, and then we're going to move fairly quickly 4 through 12, and then we'll slow down again. This is what Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, or 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay. He says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. What he means by that is, faith reorders its life, reorders life based upon something it does not see over the things that it does see. When someone comes to faith in the Lord, genuine faith in the Lord, faith that through conviction commits us, it's it's a conviction, it commits us to God. That faith, that faith in us reorders the world we see so that the unseen things of God gain paramount attention and gain the heart of our fixation and the visible things of this world become subordinate to them. That's what it's saying. And in fact, he sort of ends kind of philosophically in verse three. He says, by the way, you should remember that everything that is seen was made by the invisible voice. He just says, Step back for a second and remember that everything that's seen is subordinate and created from the unseen. In other words, God who is unseen is far more real than the things that we see. And faith is choosing in your life to say, I'm following what I cannot see. I'm ordering my life based upon him who I cannot see. That's faith. Then we're going to get a lot of examples, examples of life. So look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What's the writer saying? He's saying Abel couldn't see God. Abel didn't necessarily talk to God. But Abel, though he could not see God, chose to believe in who God is and therefore gave a sacrifice appropriate, that honored, a sacrifice that believed in the God he could not see. God looked at his sacrifice and said, this young man believes me. Whereas Cain, this man is giving ritual. But he believes me. And you saw it. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So here we have the story of Enoch, which is early in Genesis. Enoch, apparently when he got really old, the Lord took him up. It sounds like he did not die, but rather the Lord took him to himself. To which we might think, well, by, by what means did this great gift, right? Wouldn't, who here would not want to die? How kind it was that the Lord would take him up before he died. How did that happen? You know how it is that happened? Is that the Lord looked at his manner of life and was pleased by it. In other words, Enoch in his life 
served the Lord in a pleasing way, even though he could not see him. His conviction in a thing not seen was the source caused him to order his life towards the unseen. He lived his life differently. He lived his life around the invisible God rather than around the things that we can see. Next verse, verse 7. Well, excuse me, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. What is being said here is, it doesn't matter what you do, it matters to whom you do it. God's not looking at the act. God is searching the heart. And he can tell. He can tell. Is the act that you're doing, is the act that you're doing the fruit of belief in him, the desire to please him, or is it connected to one of the many other sort of motivations, a whole bunch of other motivations? Do we help people to feel good about ourselves? Do we help people to gain position and advantage later on in life? Do we help people because we believe that the sum total of our good deeds achieves some level of righteousness that's still being done on our behalf? You're still laboring for yourself. He says, listen, without faith, without a life pointed and directed towards the invisible God, you can't possibly please him no matter what you do because it's never for him. It's never done before him. Seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Noah built a huge boat even though he could not see the event. That's what it's saying. It's, it's saying, think of the labor of Noah. The Lord tells him something's going to happen, and he devotes his life something like a 100 years to build a boat. Can you imagine in your own life, okay, the better part, the working years of your own life, you dedicating the labor in those best fruitful working years, you dedicate your labor towards something that's yet unseen rather than dedicating your labor towards all the things around us that we see. I mean, day in and day out, I'm I'm being a little bit flat here, but day in and day out, all of Noah's neighbors are going to work. He's building a boat. You see how different the life is oriented? For years, Noah oriented himself around something that no one could see. And God saw that and saved him and chose to call it righteousness. I'll read 8 through 12 together. This is Abraham and his family. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. You can stop there. You appreciate that. Abraham did not know where he was going, but because of his life committed to the Lord he cannot see, he went nonetheless. And when he got there, he didn't embrace it as though it was his. He embraced the promise as though it was his. But when he lived there, he lived as though it was not his because it had not yet been given to him. And in fact, we'll find out, it was never given to him in his lifetime. Verse 10, For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. All of this good eventually comes from a life lived without actually inheriting any of it. Abraham did not see descendants as many as the stars in the heavens or the sand on the seashore. He had a son. These people who lived, they lived towards a promise that was not going to come to them in their 80th year of life or their 90th year of life. The promise, though sure, they were so convinced that the promise is sure that they did not even need to receive the fulfillment of the promise to believe it was true. It was still true and coming. This is what it says. Let me just pick up in 13. We're going to slow down and wrestle with it here. Look at 13. These all died in faith. He's talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They did not get them. They did not presume to get them. Abraham, Abraham bought one plot of ground in all of the land that God promised him. Do you know what it was for? It was so he could bury his wife. I just need a plot to bury her because one day this will be my people's land. He did not claim this promise, this promise which was for him and his people. He didn't need to get it now. He greeted it from afar off. He knew it's okay if I'm a stranger in a strange land and an exile in this land because of what God is going to do. That's faith. I just allow that sort of fall, that definition of faith to fall on your life. Is that you? Even if, and by the way, the story of Abraham, he's a man just like you and me. He makes all these mistakes. So I know you make mistakes. Is the nature of faith that's being described here, is that, is that in you? Do you find yourself reordering your life based upon things not seen? The God and Jesus Christ who's not seen, is your life being built around that? Or is your life being ordered around the things that you can see? Is your life being dictated and defined by the things you must have now? Or is it content to view the best things of God from afar? Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. He's saying, the very fact, if Abraham had really wanted land, he could always have just gone home. 
the fact that he stayed in God's will, landless, gives birth to verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Is this you? Even to lesser degree, is, is your faith of the same kind? And I would ask this at a more corporate level. If a church has genuine faith in Jesus Christ, is it, no matter how small or marginalized it is, no matter how homeless it is, no matter how peripheral it is, no matter how scoffed it is, no matter how under, under the radar it is, if a church of Jesus Christ has genuine faith towards the invisible God and the goodness that he will one day work out, is it lacking anything at all? Is there anything that it lacks? I would say no. I would say, no matter how uninfluential a body of believers may be in whatever land they're in, no matter how estranged or exiled or weird they may feel, if they are living their life towards Christ, they are exactly in his plan. Okay, I'm going to close with three very quick attempt to sort of come around after this thought and give you sort of how then we should we think? Whoa. And so these are, and like inside I'm way more radical than what I'm about to say, but if I told you what I thought, I'd get in trouble. So I'm like giving you distilled thought, which I think at the end of the day is better because what, what you may do in the Lord is far better than uh, living out someone else's thoughts. Okay, the first thought here, like our longing, if our longing, if we have faith, even if we're in the margin, our longing, where does it come from? Uh, and, and here's a thought is, without guilt or being caught up about what we're not, what is your capacity to have like a new idea? I mean, like in light of, the imagination of God's country, if you're imagining God's plan and his home and the city with sure foundations, like, does that give you the freedom to have new ideas about life? For certainly, if the kingdom of God is not of this world, then what he, the way he would have you live is different than the way that everyone's just living right now. Certainly, Right? Otherwise, you're right at home and you're not exiled. Certainly, what he, if, if we are reaching for his true intent, it must be countercultural. There's a sense that even in the established church, among people in the established church, there's something that's always a little bit anti-establishment, even inside of his established church. I mean, the moment you put a shovel in the ground to sort of build the kingdom of God, which is, this is the perfect Sunday to say this, right, before we do this. The moment you do that, you need to realize there's total obsolescence of putting hope in the shovel, right? God's kingdom's not of this world. It, that's not where the hope of the kingdom is. It's not in the shovel, not in the project. It's in a people who are free, 
they're free from the sort of the tentacles of this world on how to operate, how to get along, how to get to succeed, how to make it happen, how to raise a family, how to, all of these rules, the whole web, all of those rules that were set up, this is how it is that you're supposed to be successful in this world. Can you be free from that in the hope of God? Free enough to have your own new idea. To do it, I don't mean your way like your way. I mean like your way like an exile would do it. That's the first thought. Here's the second one. Our longing requires that we once again count the costs. The word I want to use is a pioneer. I think life and faith of the people of God, especially when they're being marginalized, begin to ask questions like pioneers would ask questions. I love the word pioneer because it has in it to me in the, the old style, like they're living in a town and they have all the dependencies of town, all the infrastructure that's sort of feeding them and showing them how to live. But there's something about that that says there is a better life, no matter, even though it's going to cost a lot and I'm going to have to give up a lot and I'm not going to have a lot in the same sorts of ways, what I will gain when I... Re- estrange myself from that is far better. That needs to be in us. Or we'll have good ideas we won't act on. Or we really won't be free. No matter how, what a great idea you have, if you are still addicted to the way of this world, we need to pioneer Last, the longing to express these thoughts, this energy, sort of God-oriented energy, the longing to do this in the places that actually make impact. So where, where do you and I have greatest impact, even as an exile, even with no influence, even if the mayor's not calling me to find out what to do, or you know, we don't have the biggest float in the parade, or we don't bless the high school football game, or, you know, the President of the United States doesn't want to know what we have to, even on all of that, regardless of how marginalized you are, where do you still possess influence? It's around your dinner table. So your children. Even if you think an exile in Babylon, they go out, they leave their little ghetto, and they go out, they work all day in Babylon by the rules of Babylon, submitting to the laws of Babylon, trying to kind of make their way among Babylonians and deal with the scorn of Babylon. And then at last they come back in, even in exile, has a dinner table. Comes back in and sits in his home and it's there that he's free to exercise influence. I'm just talking family, close friends, that inner circle that you still, that you, your influence in them is based upon your personhood. That's where these ideas and this energy and this pioneering needs to begin to take form. Not in these broad causes to be world changers. Push it back into the table. In fact, the farther we get away from family, friends, the farther we work ourselves out, our influence goes down precipitously, exponentially, particularly in our culture right now. Eventually, we're talking to the world and the world doesn't care. Bring it home. In fact, overwhelmingly in the Bible, the teachings of Scripture honor this pattern. The teachings of Scripture seem eminently concerned with how households are influenced and shaped, not 
how the world is. Honor the pattern. Can the church thrive in exile? Absolutely. It can absolutely thrive in exile because God's on his throne and because we, are, we have a victorious message and a victorious spirit. And all of that is gained through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray. As I pray, I'm going to start with you, the individual in mind, because I have in my heart, what if there's a person here today who says, I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but that kind of faith, I'll take that kind of faith. I, that's what I'm on. If, if that's, I want to pray with you towards the Lord. And if you're here thinking, I've always called myself a follower of Jesus Christ, but if you mapped my life, I would look de- utterly dependent on the things around me. Spiritually. I am not looking towards the invisible God. Then certainly you would say you need prayer. So let's pray, Lord, we come to you as a God who saves We come to you through the blood of Christ. We've been given access to speak with you and to be loved by you and adopted. And so, Lord, we come to you lifting up our church, knowing that if we have faith in you, if we orient our lives around you, there's nothing that you can't do through us. Lord, you brought Enoch to be with yourself before he died. You put Noah in a boat and saved him. You made a barren husband and wife, father and mother to a myriad of stars and sand on the seashore. By faith, they were let into this story. So Lord, if there's a person here this morning who longs to step in this faith, Lord, I'll pray with them, Lord. We pray, we acknowledge you as God. We thank you for the gift of your son through whom we have forgiveness that you look past our sin, you overlook our sin and see us as righteous. In fact, as you love us and you give us mercy, Lord, and, and we commit to orienting our life around you. Lord, in, in here, for those of little faith, or of faith in crisis, or of an overly religious life that is now showing itself to be counterfeit, Lord, we come to you and we ask for your help. We pray you would make your invisible grandeur known once again to them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.